podcasting from the doing the most capital of the world. By way of New York, New York, via the internet. This is Bagels and Plantains, a podcast by, for, and showcasing every day, round the way, but always dope as fuck, multifaceted people of color doing the damn thing and doing it well. Every week, we and our guests will be sharing the blueprint and the stories that explore the intersectionality of being Black, Brown, bothered, and unbothered, while thriving and navigating their passions, spaces, and communities. I'm your host, Deidre E. Dehan. And I am your host, Christina Torres. And here we go. Well, we're going to welcome to the podcast a friend and a very educated and woke woman, Amaka Okachukwu. She is an assistant professor of sociology at George Mason University, and she is also the author of a recently published and released book, To Fulfill These Rights, Political Struggle Over Affirmative Action and Open Admissions. So welcome to the podcast, Amaka. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Of course. And I know that when the topic of you coming on the podcast arose, I thought it was a very timely one because we're talking about so many different things as it relates to education. We're talking about affirmative action cases in universities. We're talking about a lot of these stars and people of wealth who have been paying for their children to get into high-profiled Ivy League or highly ranked universities. And then we're also talking about people of color and people who have lower socioeconomic options who are being jailed for very long sentences for trying to get their children into local schools by using different addresses. So I think that not only is this book Mm -hmm. very timely, but the topic is something that's just really spot on for what's going on in the world right now. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm certainly focused on you know, sort of political struggles around these policies, but I don't see them in isolation of other events, other processes that are really shaped by racial and class inequality as education is in this country. So those are like really important connections that you've made. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that I grew up, as I like to say, a product of the New York City public school system, public school pretty much from K through college because I did go to a state university. But it's so interesting that because of where I lived and because my mom was also an educator in the New York City public school system, my experience is very different from a lot of the friends that I've acquired who've also grew up in New York, just by where they lived or what their parents knew or just the the most minor details can change the course of anyone's educational experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, I think that in this country, particularly with public schooling, it's like you need to really have the know-how, right? Know the sort of strategies, how to engage teachers, how to make sure you can get the right classes for your children and all those different things. So it's not, you know, a very straightforward process for the average person. Absolutely. So before you became this amazing professor, before you became a writer and researcher in this topic, let's talk about how you came on this journey to becoming an academic and how you landed on sociology and specifically this topic as a topic of interest for you? For sure. So I'm originally from Oakland, California, which is, you know, a very, it's a place that's known of being pretty politically progressive or radical, depending on who you talk to, right? Home of the Black Panthers. I grew up in a church that was very politically active. And so through my experiences in the church that I grew up in, as well as just in different community organizations, like as a teenager, 
and through my school, I was a pretty active young person. I went to the University of Southern California for my undergraduate degree. And I came in as an English major with a creative writing emphasis. I always knew that I wanted to be a writer in some sense, but I was also needing a framework to help me understand the social world around me, right? As someone that was, you know, involved in activist organizations and a variety of different causes, I wanted to have some sort of framework to help me understand like social inequality, for example. And so I ended up also adding sociology as a major because I knew that it was the study of the social world. And I knew that I could probably get some get some tools and get some frameworks of understanding from that discipline. And so I added that major. And the things that were really important in my undergraduate career in regards to graduate school and preparing me for graduate school is that I got involved in two programs. One's called the McNair Scholars and the other is the Mellon Mays Undergraduate Fellowship Program. And these are programs that were national programs that were aimed at preparing underrepresented students for graduate school education, specifically to pursue PhDs. And through that program, they, you know, we went through different sort of summer research processes. They trained us how to do research. And I was doing independent research as an undergraduate student. I was doing interviews and participant observation in underground hip hop spaces in LA and really trying to explore questions around like political engagement and practices among people in these spaces. And I really found out that I really enjoyed research. It was something that I really, I felt that it in some ways met me where I was already at as a person. I was already an observant person. I was the kind of person who, you know, as I say, like an ear hustler, like when you're on the bus and you just listen to everybody's conversations mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, those types of practices are, you know, they, they make sense for sociological research, right? Those are the things that you do anyway. And so if you're a qualitative researcher. And so, you know, I found out this is, a, this is work that I like to do. And so I applied to graduate school and, yeah, got into a Ph.D. program. And that really began my, my journey as a sociologist and as a researcher more generally. Wow. So I, it's funny because you, you kind of glossed over the fact that you were doing research in underground hip-hop clubs in L.A. <laughs> and I think that is so interesting. Plus, if you think about yeah, it. Yeah, more about that. <laughs> <laughs> you know I was going to chime in there. I was like, ooh, really? More, what does that mean? Right. And just like, mm-hmm. if you think about where and how hip-hop has like influenced the U.S. culture, but just like has been a storyteller for Black culture, it sounds like, of course, that sounds like a, a perfect place to start like research, <laughs> specifically about mm-hmm. certain communities there. So tell us a little bit more about that experience. For sure. So, you know, as first of all, I was like, okay, I know that young people are going to be in these spaces and that's who I was interested in sort of examining and, and researching my peers, right? Places that I was going to be anyway. <laughs> Let's do research in places that I want to go anyway. And so prior to undergrad, as a high school student, I was very involved in my, you know, like spoken word, my poetry spaces. And so it was a, it was a kind of natural next step for me to, to go into these hip hop spaces. And so I started 
with an organization called Juice in Los Angeles, which was a kind of hip hop arts organization. It was a space that young people could go to like after school to, you know, learn how to break dance, like all the elements basically represented, but like break dancing and there was some recording equipment as well. And so people would come and just like cipher and record and experiment. And through that space, I got exposed to more of the underground like clubs and like open mic nights and and different kinds of just hip hop spaces in LA. And so I would do ethnography or sort of participant observation at this organization. And then I would also go to different clubs and different, like I said, open mic nights and also do observation there. I would drag my friends with me. (laughs) We would go to these spaces (laughs) and it was really dope. I mean, you know, it was interesting in regards to getting a sense of LA specifically and in the LA scene, right? Very diverse. So coming in, maybe having expectations that it would be a black space or black dominated space, but it being Los Angeles, there's lots of folks who were, you know, Mexican descent or South Asian descent. So very diverse space. The LA underground style is also very, I would say, unique in a way. Like Ava DuVernay, right, famous director that we all know, she, her first film was a documentary film. A lot of people don't really know about. It was called, it's called This Is The Life, and it documents underground hip-hop in LA in, like, the 90s. And she was an MC when she was like a teenager and like a young adult. And she chronicles all of her peers as well as herself, you know, in the film. You don't find out to the end that, you know, the person that's being interviewed is actually the director of the film. But it's a really excellent film. And that's the, the scene that she documents really precedes it, like birthed the scene that I was then documenting. And so it was, yeah, it was a really great research opportunity. Again, I was interviewing, I was doing participant observation. I was like really thinking about like what I was seeing and what I was finding. And, you know, I just thought it was great that I could go into spaces that I would have gone to anyway and turn that into a research project. And so that really, you know, I I sort of fell in love with research at that point and decided it was something that I wanted to pursue after undergrad. I love that. I especially love the fact that you would be in these spaces anyway, but that comfort level, that familiarity also helped to spark something that you didn't know you would have liked, which is research, and then took you on this journey towards not only getting a PhD, but becoming a a professional researcher and academic, which I think is something that when you're growing up, you don't realize that you can actually create careers and pathways to success through things that you may already be doing or things that you really like. Absolutely. And I think that through those programs and those processes, I was able to figure out what it is that professors, particularly at research productive institutions, what they actually did, right? So most of the time when we're, you know, enrolled in classes, we go to these classes, your professor teaches you. And as students, you probably think that their primary job or responsibility is teaching you, right? But at research productive institutions, their job security, (laughs) their ability to keep their job tends to be more dependent on the research that they're producing. And so I found out that, oh, yeah, my professors, at least the tenure track professors that I had, were actually writing and doing research and were engaged in these other conversations beyond the classroom. And so I was able to, you know, get exposed to that um, as well through these programs. Awesome. Awesome. So I do want to dive in to your book, To Fulfill These Rights. 
So what drove you to write this piece of literature? Because I know I was reading through it and it's, it's not necessarily a novel, but it's an easy, I think it's an easy read. I don't know, Christina, you could yeah. and let me know if like, I'm just kind of completely off the wall <laughs> with that. I think you are just the most intellectual person I know. So I knew it was going to be a good read for you. <laughs> I, no, I will say it was very, and that's why I asked that question because I was like, is this a text? At first, I'm not going to lie, it was a little struggle for me. But that's because I come from a world where writing is like super simple. As a copywriter, I mean, it's like like the simplest of simplest because you have to get a lot of people to read something and you gotta get, it's online, right? So you got to get them to read it fast. But I think a lot of the context and a lot of the buildup that happens in research books or in textbooks, I think it was at first I was like, oh, okay, is this, it's just not, it's not a reading you're used to, right? If you're reading fiction, but it was very helpful in like understanding context and like really, really almost like massaging my brain and getting it ready for like that, what I was about to read. So I will say that at first I was like, oh man, you can do this, Christina. You can read this. (laughs) Because I was just like, oh wow, this is almost like a text. But it gave me such a learning that I didn't even know I was missing. You know what I mean? And so I was like, once I got it going, once my brain wrapped around, like, no, we are about to learn something for real, then it it became like a page turner. So I'm ready. Yeah, I'm ready to dive in. And I love that you included, I mean, we might read the quote from President, oh my God, this is why I need to go back to first grade. I forgot the president's quote. Thank you. Yes, Linda B. Johnson. And it it speaks so much to now, right? Like, okay, just because you've given people freedom does not, kind of speaks to that theory, right? Like when you let a bird, you open the cage. To, to the to the bird cage, and you think because you've given them their free you know, their freedom to fly out that they're going to. No, you've got to give people some tools. It's not how any of this works. So yeah, so let's definitely dive into the book. I'm really excited. I got my highlights and go. <laughs> go. <laughs> Um, I think I'll let me read the quote first since since Christina teed okay. that up so nicely. So it is a quote from President Lyndon B. Johnson at the commencement address at Howard University in June 1965. Just so you know, this is the time that he is saying this. But freedom is not enough. You do not wipe away the scars of centuries by saying, now you are free to go where you want and do as you desire and choose the leaders you please. You do not take a person who, for years, has been hobbled by chains and liberate him, bring him up to the starting line of a race, and then say, you are free to compete with all the others, and still justly believe that you have been completely fair. Thus, it is not enough just to open the gates of opportunity. All our citizens must have the ability to walk through those gates. This is the next and more profound stage of the battle for civil rights. We seek not just freedom, but opportunity. We seek not just legal equity, but human ability not just equality as a right and a theory, but equality as a fact and equality as a result. So that being said, that was 1965 at Howard University. This still resonates in 2019. How is this possible? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that I was trying to chronicle through the book in some ways is Right, talking about this history and really trying to understand our present through this history, because so many of the struggles that were waged in the 60s are still essentially the sort of purpose of those struggles, right, that we're still dealing with them, right? And so a lot of things that we thought may have been resolved 
during that period are still with us and we, they still need to be resolved. Lyndon Johnson is giving this quote at a time of movement, at a time we're going into the, starting to go into the late 60s where you have hundreds of urban rebellions across the country. We have civil rights reform is, uh, and legislation is being adopted at this time. And so there's this great hope that people have, you know, for the future. However, and sort of as a side note, it's really interesting to me that Lyndon Johnson gives this quote. It really shows you the importance of movement and the importance of people pushing the government to sort of respond to their needs. Because while Lyndon Johnson is a Democrat, I mean, you know, he's a, he's a Southerner mm-hmm. and, and he's not someone that you think would necessarily take this type of position. Right. And, Absolutely. you know, for me. Yeah, for me, that really just shows you the power of the moment and the power of movements. At the end of the day, you know, he's trying to make sure that the country doesn't fall apart, (laughs) that, you know, that, you know, that coming to some sort of resolution, right, so that the movements and rebellions and those sorts of things stop. He's trying to manage crisis. And so, so it's important to me that he, you know, he is the one that sort of expresses this quote. But in the book, I'm really trying to explore, right, in regards to access to higher education, how a lot of the reforms of the civil rights movement in some ways become arrested, right, due to conservative rollback, right? A lot of the things that we believe have been legislated and should allow certain kinds of equal opportunity, the enforcement mechanisms either don't exist, conservatives have challenged it in the law, So a lot of the the policies that should be helping folks or are not helping them as much as we perhaps think they should be and how these policies are really under threat. It's unfortunately not a very optimistic book, (laughs) but, you know, it's important to know like how how laws get unraveled over time. I agree. I mean, I I guess for me, I've always known certain things. I've always dwelled in. African-American history and the history of civil rights, kind of tangentially. I'm, I'm very much steeped in psychology, but because I'm a Black person in a country where being Black isn't the norm, I've chosen to educate myself on why this is and the historical ramifications behind slavery and all of the things happening post-slavery and laws and rules and zoning and things of that sort. So what struck me was that The rationale these days, and this is like the last maybe five, even 10 years for the repeal of affirmative action is that we solved it. We Mm -hmm. fixed it. So we don't need this anymore because look, look at all the progress that we've made. And I want to say, I think it was like the University of Michigan, and I'm trying to find that page now, but pretty much what people were talking about in terms of enrolling more black students, more students of color and putting more diversity in universities, we're saying the same thing in 2019. Mm-hmm. And things have changed, but I feel like the, the core issues and the core barriers haven't actually been removed. It's almost like it's been a moving target in exactly. a sense. And I think if you, if you fail to study the history, and like you said, this book isn't like a fairy tale Like, it's not really a happy ending, but I think it's more just bringing awareness to the reader that don't be fooled by what you might see or what you might think or what you might hear. Here are the hard facts. And here's why a lot of work still needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think it 
also gives, you know, for the average person, right, who's sort of responding to the news cycle, it's like, why are people, why is, why are there all these court cases for affirmative action? I thought Michigan happened and solved that. I thought Texas happened and solved that. Like, it gives you some context for why these challenges keep emerging, right? So even a couple of weeks ago, there was a district court decision in the Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard case in which Edward Bloom, who is in the book, he's behind the Fisher cases, is mounting a challenge to affirmative action at Harvard University. But instead of using white women plaintiffs, has been the case since uh, the 90s, mm-hmm. he is now using Asian plaintiffs, really trying to sort of mobilize this model minority stereotype to you know, dismantle affirmative action at Harvard. This is strategic, of course, for the use of Asian plaintiffs, but also because the Baki decision, which is a, a federal a Supreme Court decision from 1978, which is still to this day the most important decision made in regards to affirmative action, um, universities are still sort of responding to. The Baki decision upholds Harvard's case as the model use of affirmative action. And so part of what they're doing is that they're trying to attack the model so that it makes it easier to dismantle affirmative action federally throughout the country. And so the sort of district court decision was that affirmative action at Harvard was legal. They weren't doing anything wrong. However, this is just the district court level. And so Bloom and his organization will absolutely appeal. The intention is to get this to the Supreme Court. And we know with this court right now, which is very conservative leaning, and because Trump has, <laughs> you know, control in regards to Supreme Court appointments, and because the court is very, it's aging, right? It's a very old court, which means that there will soon be either retirements or deaths. And so Trump is in the position where he can appoint these conservative appointments, but he's already appointed two. And so it's likely that by the time this type of case makes it to the Supreme Court, it may not make it out affirming diversity as previous decisions have done. Wow. Yeah. I think one of the things that I I took from this book was that, so I and Christina and I grew up in the 80s and 90s, right? And so mm-hmm. the public school system that we saw was full of, specifically in New York, now, this is a very New York-centric possibly view. There were a lot of gifted and talented programs. There were a lot of programs that were designed to help struggling schools, to designed to help at-risk youth, people who were poorer, to kind of really make sure that there was this push or this effort into high school graduation rates, college admission rates, et cetera. And for me, I'm an alumna of Brooklyn Technical High School, which is a specialized high school in New York City. And when I was there, I want to say that Black and Asian students were, took up the majority of the students there. Granted, Bronx mm-hmm. Science and Stuyvesant have always had dwindling numbers, but at least there was a good base at Brooklyn Tech. So in 2018, 2019, to hear that the specialized high schools, all three of them as a whole, had such low numbers of Black students, Hispanic students, it's almost jarring because it seemed as if there was all of these methods and systems put in place when we were coming up that somehow Mm -hmm. disappeared. And you touched a little bit on a lot of the pilot initiatives that were in place back in the day. What do you think happened or what has happened to a lot of Mm -hmm. these initiatives and why isn't the focus on, I guess, at-risk youth anymore? 
Mm-hmm. Well, I can, in the context of affirmative action, I will say, and this is sort of, I think, a parallel experience. When people think of affirmative action and most of the debate and the sort of discourse that we have around it, right, it's about the consideration of race and university admissions process, right, in ways that Black, Latinx, and Native American students most benefit from, right? However, affirmative action can also extend to other kinds of programs, recruitment programs, retention programs, you know, access to different forms of financial aid and scholarship, summer bridge programs, right? And so I know that in some cases, particularly after the Michigan Supreme Court cases, which were in 2003, that even though Michigan generally, you know, diversity and affirmative action was essentially affirmed in that case, and they were able to keep those programs, it was a very costly lawsuit. Right? The university had to spend millions trying to fight this, this lawsuit in the Supreme Court. And a lot of conservative organizations, you know, essentially threatened a bunch of universities that if you don't dismantle your programs or if you don't, you know, adjust these programs, we'll sue you too. And just the threat of lawsuits forced and encouraged many universities to dismantle those kinds of programs. Again, not just admissions programs in terms of the process of admissions, but programs that would also benefit high school students, right, who might, you know, want to you know, be involved in a program where we would spend time on a college campus or, like I said, summer bridge programs, different kinds of recruitment programs. And so a lot of those programs were actually dismantled just with the threat of lawsuit in the the early 2000s, which would certainly disadvantage Black and Brown students who might be, you know, first-time, first-generation college students who those programs are very meaningful, right, in, in regards to exposing folks to the college experience. And so in that context, right, the sort of conservative rollback has certainly impacted students beyond that of just applying to the school. But beyond that, I think that it also can be a combination of like funding processes. It can be in the sort of retrenchment of of different kinds of funding for those kinds of programs. And we also know, even in the context of high school, but also in college, in regards to getting access, right? I mean, the types of resources that people have to mobilize just to get into a school. I mean, this is, you know, sort of connecting to the the sort of college admission scandal that you opened up with about the wealthy parents essentially buying seats for their children in school. I mean, that is in, in some sense, you know, the most obvious example, right, of, of how people mobilize their resources to get access to these spaces. But we also know about the role of testing companies, right? And not just for college admissions, but also high school, right? And the different types of strategies that people have to use or that people are using to access both public and private schools. And we know that if that's the case, if this is how people are sort of navigating this system, then of course, Black and um, Latinx students are going to be the most disadvantaged by that process, particularly in urban spaces. And so we know that those are the types of uh, factors that are shaping people's access to both secondary and higher education. Absolutely. So one of the things I wanted to ask is, what is your hope in writing this book? I know that I'm sure that you suggest or make this mandatory reading for any of your students. What is your hope that this book does? Well, I hope 
I guess I hope this book does a few things. One, I hope it in some ways exposes some of the ways in which conservatives have shaped, you know, the racial landscape in the post-civil rights period, right? Even with all of these progressive um, reforms and legislations, right? There are ways in which conservative political actors have really been an obstacle to enforcement of these policies and just the existence of these policies since so many have been rolled back. So that's the first thing, just sort of exposing that. I think so much of, particularly academic literature, but even beyond that, in, for, in regards to movements, right, we tend to rightfully so focus on sort of grassroots movements of the marginalized. And that's super important. That's where my heart is. But when we don't examine the ways that conservatives or people in power are able to sort of navigate and strategize, we miss a lot in regards to how the world works, right, and how power operates. And so we really have to draw attention to like how people in power are using strategies and tactics to meet their goals to achieve their goals. So that's the first thing. And then another thing is really trying to highlight the ways in which our ideas about race. So I talk about racial logics in the book, but particularly of diversity and colorblindness, the ways in which those themes, those logics are developed, right, through political struggle. We often take these terms where they came from for granted, but they have historical roots in the law, right? And so really understanding like where they came from why, for example, people are so invested in the language of diversity today, like where that comes from, right? It really has roots in that Baki case that I mentioned earlier, right? And universities have played such a huge role in sort of shaping what we, what most people think diversity is, right? Even though it's sort of grown into this ambiguous term that everyone uses and isn't necessarily, you know, implementing in a particular way, right? Diversity can often look like tokenism. So that's another you know, things to keep in mind, but really understanding like where this language, where these terms come from. And I guess finally, for me, it was really important to connect affirmative action to open admissions. Affirmative action is a policy that is implemented most exclusively at elite institutions, elite selective institutions, right? So the sheer majority of college students are not attending universities that actually use affirmative action. However, open admissions, right, is a process that tends to happen at less selective, more working class oriented institutions. And so I wanted to talk about both policies across sort of selective and less selective institutions so we have a sense of how rollback is impacting not just the elite spaces, but also the spaces that in which, you know, most of our students will, you know, be sort of going through more working class and more less selective institutions and particularly Black and brown students, right? And so looking at the ways in which rollback is impacting universities across the field of higher education. And so those are some of like the biggest takeaways from the book that I hope, you know, resonate with folks. I know that, you know, Christina had mentioned earlier in regards to the, the style of writing, right? So this is, I'm an academic, right? And, you know, in writing a book, right, there's this, there's such, I've come to learn that there's many different purposes to writing, right? And as an academic, you know, and as a researcher, right, I'm expected to sort of produce academic literature. And so I'm certainly responding to particular debates and themes in the academic literature, but I intended to at least write it in a somewhat accessible manner so that folks who are not rooted in those fields could also, 
you know, understand sort of what's happening, particularly the historical development and to provide them context, right, for, you know, the contemporary moment. So hopefully, you know, that was done. That's such a longer conversation about writing and the writing process. But those are some of the biggest takeaways, I would say, from the book. I'm finally in a quiet place. <laughs> Sorry. And it's, I think it's kind of funny. So on the ride, literally five minutes ago, I passed Rutgers University, a few communities. I just landed in Philadelphia, right? And I'm across the street from the Declaration House. Deja made a really interesting point about, I guess, in inner cities or in urban cities, those programs for the, I guess, the middle and the high school age at-risk youth you know, the programs they have. And she made an interesting point in which she did say those in those areas, there's predominantly, which I guess speaks a lot for, you know, whoever's been in the country the longest, right? So Black and, and Chinese. I know for a lot of, not for me, because my parents have come from Puerto Rico and they came here in the 50s, 50s, 40s. And so by the time they were here, you know, they spoke English, but their their parents may have not and not very well. And so I know a lot for a few of my classmates or people who I've just, you know, hung out, hung out on the block with, their parents didn't speak English, right? And so a lot of these applications or these, or didn't speak enough English to read these applications, right? They're, they're in a certain language, they're in a certain, not only are they in English, but they're also at a, a different, a higher reading level. And so many of us didn't even know these programs existed. No one came mm-hmm. to us to tell us that these programs existed, I actually went to a parochial school because my mother just was like, public school is trash here. I don't know what else to do with you. I'm going to put you in a parochial school, a private parochial school, which, you know, God bless her heart. That, that, I mean, I'm sure it was better than the alternative in her eyes. But let me, let me just let you know, my senior project was planning my wedding. It wasn't wow. my career. So, yeah, which I actually opted not to do. I asked him, what is my, you know, what's my grade point average in this class? And he said, you're an A plus. I said, well, how many points am I going to lose if I don't do this project? He said, probably B plus, making you down A minus. I said, you can go fuck yourself. I'm not doing this project because this has nothing to do with what, (laughs) there's so many intersections, right? I think you speak about that too in the book. It's not, you know, it's not just being a person of color, but there's intersectionalities. There's being, you know, there's ableism, there's, you know, sexism. There's so many different (laughs) roadblocks along the way, depending on how many boxes you check. So what is, what are we doing now for the, what do they call them now? The dreamers. What are we doing for the dreamers, right? That's what they call the people, the immigrants who come here now who actually had for what they had access to college and are probably losing it because of Trump's, you know, <laughs> his, his view on life. What, what are we, what's helping those or what, what are, what's even in place? now for all those intersections because you know there's black and brown but we also have to face like we're women and then even more to that if you're not from an english-speaking country there goes another layer of block Mm -hmm. so what what's what are the places around that or where should we tell what where should we tell our communities to go look for these things because i I couldn't even tell you now (laughs) i couldn't even tell you now where where do we where do we find these things 
Right. That's a huge question. And I'll, you know, try to the best of my abilities to, to ask that. <laughs> but I do, you know, I think, you you know, raise really important points. I mean, one, we have to acknowledge and sort of, you know, deal with the fact that we are living in Trump's America, which unfortunately means that there has been a lot of rollback and a lot of attempts to dismantle you know, if there was any kind of safety net, right? There's been so many attempts to dismantle that. So I think a few things we have to focus on making sure, even though this political system is extremely limited, we have to make sure that we get people in office that at least can speak to the things that we need, that can speak to, you know, having accessible education, right? That's one thing. We absolutely need to ensure a kind of public commitment to granting resources to our institutions. This is beyond an affirmative action. This is about the sort of public institutions that the most Americans and particularly black and brown folks are able to access, right? We need to make sure that they're funded, right? So I focus on higher education in this book, but it's, it's really difficult to talk about higher education without really acknowledging the ways that K-12 education is shaped by access to resources, class, race, nationality, et cetera, right? And so we need to make sure that, you know, our schools are being properly funded and that there are actual pathways for people to access opportunity after they graduate. So that's another thing. We have to absolutely support movements, right? So in terms of the dreamers, right? I mean, these are people that, you know, are trying to access education, in the public sector, but this is this is a movement of folks, right? Folks that are many folks of which are undocumented, but instead of sort of you know operating in that fear, they're really working to you know inform the public about their situation and the ways in which you know their access is being limited due to you know this administration, but generally the legislation of this country. So definitely, we have to we have to fight. I mean, period. We have to fight. In regards to, let me see, there was a question about how do people access resources. It's unfortunately, that is such a specific question in regards to folks' particular context, right? So how, for example, how public schooling works in New York City is not the same as how public schooling works in Oakland, California, or a Detroit, Michigan, right? And so, but I think the probably the best thing that you can do is to make sure that you have advocates, right? Are there people that can help young people sort of navigate the the public school system. If it's not a parent, is it a teacher? Is it, you know, a staff member, a principal, whoever the case may be, right? Folks need advocates to help them understand what they, you know, the types of opportunities that they have access to. And so, you know, in, in some ways, right, folks can find advocates. That may also be through local community organizations. If they're organizations oriented around education in particular, those may be spaces to go to. Your librarian might help you (laughs) in regards to knowing the sorts of resources, scholarship programs that are available. You know, libraries are still really important institutions in our communities for a variety of reasons. But really finding the people that, you know, can be invested and sort of help you through that process and banding together, right, with other students, sharing information. If you know that there's this program or this scholarship, you need to tell your friends and other folks as well. So I don't know. Those are some very basic ways that I would see in regards to finding out ways to navigate this very complicated world of, of you know, K-12 and higher education. But so much of knowledge, right, is sort of trans is transmitted through your social networks, 
right? People that you know. And so you kind of have to mobilize um, those networks in order to help you, right, access a variety of, of, of resources. Shouldn't be that way, but this is the reality. So we have to find ways to, you know, work through that. Awesome. No, that's really helpful. Even the basics. I didn't even know that much. It's just now we have Google and things are a lot easier. Right. And so maybe you could punch in some keywords and, and find those things for you. So, yeah, that, mm-hmm. I hope that's helpful for our audience as well. As we're all growing and, you know, starting families, it's something I think about often. Like, can my school, can my kid even go to school in New York City? Is it even worth it? Right. Should we move? <laughs> like, what is, what is, you know, we're not trees. We can move where we want to go. But, like, does that necessarily mean he's going to have a better a better schooling situation. So for like, right. let's, if, if someone is going to, you know, I guess what I always think about is like, should we just be educating and teaching our own, right? But our, our, last, our last episode, you know, her mother made a great point. Like you can't just stay in your community. You have to go and interact with other groups of people. You could just be in a school where you're, you know, you are, everyone looks like you, but that's not the world, right? That's not how the world looks. And that's not how you'll, that's not how you'll live in the world. So what are we doing when they get there? You have some really astonishing numbers that like, we get there, we get to these places, but there's no support for black and brown. So we're not graduating. We're leaving. We're feeling isolated. We're feeling anxiety. We're feeling depressed. We're having imposter syndrome. From your point of view, what could we be doing better there? I don't know what's in place now because it's been a long time. <laughs> right. But what's what could what's in place? What do you think we should be doing now? What's in place now, and what could we be doing better? Right. There. Such a great question because retention is huge, right? Lots of schools will admit, you know, some numbers of Black and Brown students, but those are the groups that are most likely to to not finish. And there's a variety of things that are obstacles to that. So one is, of course, the cost, right? Higher education is extremely expensive right now, right? And so if people don't have the resources to, you know, pay for their tuition, to pay for their living expenses, that's going to be a huge obstacle to them finishing. I even remember in college, I had a roommate who had a full scholarship, Right. So you would think that everything was fine. But because she was a film student, the many other expenses that come with that process of making films, essentially, as undergraduate student that were not covered in tuition meant that she had to get an additional job. I think she had she might have had two additional jobs. I remember always feeling kind of sad because she worked all the time. She couldn't sort of enjoy any college experience because she was either in class working on her films, which essentially were assignments for her class, or working. She barely slept. It was just a really bad situation. And so even the sort of incidental costs that we don't really think about, we need to make sure that students are able to really cover their full costs. Another thing that some folks have been talking more about in the sort of public realm in regards to education, you know, for students who may be working class, they go far away for, you know, to a good school for college, and then, you know, winter break comes and they can't afford to go back home, right? So they're on campus, but all the, you know, cafeterias are closed, and so there's nowhere to eat, and they don't have money to, you know, to to spend on food to eat, right? So these are the sorts of issues that would encourage a lot of students to drop out, right? Feeling isolated, feeling like they don't have resources, they don't have a a network of support to help them through that process. So certainly the cost of, of education, 
there's also just the sort of unwritten rules, right? If you are a first-generation college student, you may not know, for example, what office hours are, right? You come to class, your professor says, oh, you can come to my office hours. You may not know what that is. You may not know about, you may not have certain, I don't know, study skills or whatever that other students coming from more elite situations may have had access to, right? You may not know, I mean, these are just basic things, but a way to properly cite documents, right? And you may be failing assignments because you're not learning, you didn't learn how to do that before you got to college. And so there's also the kinds of social and cultural capital that, you know, students don't have, don't have, right? That also may play a factor in them dropping out because that help, that plays a role in them feeling isolated, right? And, you know, we also have to recognize that if, if particularly for black and brown students that are getting admitted and going to majority white spaces, there is a level of racial isolation that can feel quite overwhelming, right, culturally being in a different space. And so part of how to sort of navigate that, I mean, one, put things in place that'll help you survive that experience, whether it be therapy, if you have access to that through your institution, hopefully there is some sort of health insurance that covers that, but it may not be. But have a community of support, right? So I went to a predominantly white institution and we had a small black community, but we were a mighty black community, right? We had lots of events, there was lots of organizations, there was lots of spaces for folks to come together. And so even though I was at a predominantly white institution, I still felt I still had the social support to survive that process. And of course, I was still in classes with white students, students of other races, and I was involved in different work with students of other races. But I also had a home, also had a place where I could go to where I felt comfortable and where I could just, you know, be myself as well. And so those types of spaces are like incredibly important to helping students, you know, graduate, helping students feel part of the campus community and helping them feel a part of community and not just sort of socially isolated. It's so funny that you mentioned once students, even if they get a full ride, they still have so many hidden expenses that nobody tells them about. I know there was an article Mm -hmm. in the New York Times Magazine, I want to say a couple months back, that talked about, he's now a professor at Harvard, uh, I think his name was Anthony Jack, who... He, he's a professor currently in, the, I think, the Harvard Graduate School of Education, but he wrote this powerful article about his experience as a poor first-generation college student who was going to school at Amherst and the fact that mm-hmm. he didn't have the resources that all of his other, other students had and that how he had to work. And even when there were breaks, he couldn't afford to go home. He had to stay and work mm-hmm. and how that feeling of, oh, and then he also talked about the fact that the food halls would close because they didn't expect Mm -hmm. students to still be on campus and what he had to do to eat, what he had to do to kind of stay warm and what he had to do to find his own place. Because if you think about it, if you're alone on a college campus, it's pretty much, you could be alone in a cemetery. It's the scariest experience in the world. But then imagine now you're alone and you're a person of color. Mm-hmm. And imagine you're alone, a person of color who has to work, who people aren't really seeing, you're invisible. So I think that's, that's a very important point that even if you are getting a full ride, even if your tuition is paid for and your room and board is paid for, there are so many other things that aren't thought about that can be make or break for a student and can, can really determine whether they stay the course if they can and they have that grit and resiliency or if they decide to opt out. Right. I mean, yeah, his book, so Anthony Jack's book, The Privileged Poor, is excellent on this topic. I believe that Times piece 
might have been a little taste of the book. So he mm-hmm. talked more about his experience. But so excellent book. I encourage everyone to, to get that. But, you know, as students of color, you're also dealing with just the real world, right? I mean, the fact that we're on these college campuses doesn't divorce us from the realities, you know, of what it means to be Black or Brown in this country. So, you know, particularly these questions around racial profiling, right? We were constantly racially profiled on campus, particularly if you're in an urban area, right? Right, People think that you're the suspect for a robbery that happened a few blocks away or, you know, those sorts of things. And so you're dealing with those issues around being racially profiled, these questions around policing. I mean, these issues are not divorced from our experience just because we may be in elite spaces or, you know, on college campuses. So we're also dealing with just the trauma of being Black and Brown and trying to achieve something at the same time, right, being on these campuses. And so those are things that we also have to take into consideration that white students, for example, are not dealing with at all, right? They're not having to carry that extra burden, you know, in regards to, you know, these experiences. And so that's another thing that also plays a role in people's ability to to stay in school. Well, thank you so much. This is such a great conversation. I feel like it was a heavy conversation, but definitely necessary and informative. But before we let you go, we always like to, to end on a very positive note or a little fun note. So we mm-hmm. like to ask all of our listeners a few questions that are not necessarily, but can be related to what we spoke about. So the first question we like to ask, we are bagels and plantains. So if you were a food, what food would you be? Oh my gosh, what a hard question. I was actually talking to my partner partner this morning about the name of the podcast. And we were like, wow, those are two of our favorite foods. Awesome. <laughs> that means you're that means you're our people. <laughs> you get that often and it makes me so happy. <laughs> right? You're our people. Yes, for sure. At this moment, I would be I would be a veggie roti. That's what I would be at this moment. I don't eat, well, I eat fish. But other than that, I don't eat meat. But I live in D.C. now, but I lived in New York for like 10 years before moving here. And there are West Indians here, but... It's not the same. Access access to roti is not (laughs) the same. It's not. It's not as good. So I'm missing that right now. So I would be a veggie roti... You know, with some chana, potatoes, mm-hmm. some callaloo, some com- pumpkins, some tamarind, pepper. That's what I would be right now. Oh, that's just, that, make, that actually makes me want to go and get a roti right now. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't going to be no roti in Philly. I can tell you that much. <laughs> nah, I don't, I don't think God that's going to work for you. <laughs> unless they put that, unless they can put that in like a hoagie. I don't know what we can do for you in Philly right now. I don't know either. All right. So what is your favorite place to be creative or I guess in your thought, in your case, thoughtful? This is somewhat boring, but I like to do, I like to work in public. So I like, like I'm a coffee shop writer. So, you know, I like to have activity happening around me. So yeah, somewhere in public, like a coffee shop or like even a bar or a restaurant or something like that. I like to be the ability to, to tune out and then pick up on what's happening around me. So yeah, that's what I would say. I like that. That's also Christina's style as well. She's very much a public space worker. I'm just nosy. And sometimes, like, <laughs> you get good exactly. stuff. I really, like, that's such a huge part of my, like, people are like, oh, wow, right there. You make, no, I'm like, most of it is just me eavesdropping. And then I just take those little nuggets. <laughs> people are fascinated. You see it. 
you're a natural ethnographer, you're a natural social scientist, right? Picking up on all those conversations. So yeah, I think that's one of the reasons I also like working in public too. <laughs> yep. That's funny. If you could describe yourself in one word, what would it be? Oh man. Thoughtful. I like that. It's hilarious that these questions are difficult for you because I feel like we just talked about such heavy things. And you're like, oh, I don't know what kind of food I'd be. (laughs) And you know what's so funny? Right before she said it, right before Amaka said thoughtful, I was like, she's thoughtful. And she went thoughtful. And I was like, (gasps) I know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then maybe it's an accurate, maybe that's accurate then. So I I think so. That's so funny. And the last question you want to ask is, what is the one thing that you want our Bagels and Planters listeners to know about you? It could be anything. It could be fun. It could be serious. It could be professional. It could be personal. I am a Black woman living in D.C. and I miss Brooklyn desperately. I think we could appreciate that. Yeah. We we miss you. I've been out of... I've been out of Brooklyn for an hour and I'm like, God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Take me back. Yeah. I'm like, Oh, when is the next bus neck? All right. Exactly. (laughs) Well, it was so much fun talking to you, Amaka. Where can our listeners find you if they wanted to get more details about you or your book or your work? You can definitely go to my website, which is just my name, A-M-A-K-A-O-K-E-C-H-U-K-W-U.com. Yes, I know long name, but you could also Google me and the website should be able to come up. And the book, you should be able to get it wherever. I mean, Amazon certainly has it. You can buy it directly through Columbia University Press. You can get a 30% discount with the code cup 30 and then any local books, any bookstore that you may go to, you can also order it through them. It should be pretty accessible. And, you, and definitely order it at your library. That's, like, really important. Make sure that it's at the library so that people have access to it as well. But, yeah, my website. I'm also on Twitter, PhD, Amaka, A-M-A-K-A. And, yeah, those are yeah, places you can find me in my work. Awesome. We're so excited to have you here. I think that we talked about so many different topics that are not only pressing to us, but pressing to our community. And you did it with such style and grace, and it didn't feel like we were in a lecture hall. So we could always appreciate that. Yeah, <laughs> good. I'm glad. I'm <laughs> glad it was interesting and accessible. Awesome, yeah. awesome. I was very happy to keep up with the both of you. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, whoo, I hope I have someone to contribute to this. At least I hit the record button. thank you so much i feel like these are just so great i feel like i learned so much from our guests so thank you again for being on the pod thank you so much for having me this was a a great time talking with y'all and yeah i look forward to hearing more of your future episodes thank you for tuning in to bagels and plantains with your girls deidre and christina if you like the flavor we're kicking in your ear and want to know more about upcoming guests follow us on the gram at bagels and plantains If you want to show us even more love, then don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes or drop a little of that coin into the support bucket at our Patreon link below in our show notes so we can keep bringing you the latest and the greatest. Thank you again for tuning in.